All right, you can take a seat. I love child dedications. I love seeing those babies up there. I was kind of tearing up, and it's not because I have baby fever. I'm not there yet, um, just to be clear. Uh, when Ben and I occasionally get baby fever, we just hold one of your babies for a little bit, and then we give the baby back. You know, that's, that's how we deal with it. Uh, but it was just a beautiful moment for me as I was tearing up, because I was looking at these gorgeous children, and I was thinking about how much love we have for them in this room collectively. Like how much we want the very best for them, how much we want to protect them, how much we believe in them, how precious they are to us. And I thought, how much more does God see us that way? How much, at the end of the day, we're his children. And he loves us so deeply. And, and I was overwhelmed by that notion just even moments ago. And my prayer this morning as we jump into the message is that regardless of where we are, regardless of what we're facing, regardless of where we are in the journey of our faith and what we have to get back to after the service today, that we would leave here with this deep understanding, even deeper than we've ever known, of how truly loved we are by God, that he sees us, that he cares for us, and that he has his absolute best for us. With that in mind, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that you're here in this place. We thank you that your spirit is here. And I thank you, God, that where your spirit is, there's freedom, there's hope, there's joy, there's life. And God, we just receive everything that you have for us today. We thank you, Father, that you love us, that you see us. And so, God, I pray that you would take this one message and you would be able to miraculously make it speak so personally to each and every one of us. Meet us where we are in this place, oh God. And may we leave here with a deeper understanding of your love, your grace, and your plans for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love that. I don't know what music is playing in the background, but I know we changed up the, like, where the children are today. And I know our little ones that we love, and we were just talking about, are actually in a room behind here. So if you hear, like, nursery rhymes or... Um, I don't know what it is, but it's very faint and it's beautiful. I think it might impact for the better the message today. So we're just going to roll with whatever noises we hear. And those who are joining online, I don't even know if you can pick it up, but just know it's very soothing right now and it's, it's quite wonderful in this, in this room. Hey, how many of you have ever had the experience of walking into a crowded space, maybe with a lot of unfamiliar faces, maybe familiar faces, but there's just a lot of people in the room and from across the room, Somebody walks in that you know, and you don't only know this person, they're not just anybody, they're somebody. Like, either you, ha you admire them greatly, you look up to them, you respect them, you want to get to know them more. Maybe they are like your, your, your like secret man crush, woman crush. Maybe, like, you really crush it on this person, single people. You know the experience. Like, like you get butterflies when they walk in the room. Like you've already decided that they are your future spouse. They just don't know it yet. You wouldn't say it out loud, but you and Jesus have talked. Like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of feeling. And this person from across the room looks at you and they smile and they wave. And it's like they're summoning you over. And it feels so amazing, right? And so you light up your face and you you're like, yes, I'm, I'm, this is my moment. We are, I'm going to get to know you more. This is great. And as you start to wave back, you see a puzzled look on their face. And then something tells you, look behind. And so you do. And you realize you intercepted a hello that was not meant for you, right? Now, in this moment, it does not matter how mature you are. It doesn't matter how 
while you're adulting in life, it doesn't matter what title you hold or what college degree you've had. It doesn't matter what your credit score is. In that moment, we all revert inside to the awkward feeling of a middle school student, right? Like you're like, oh, you know, and, and there's no way to play it off, right? There's nothing you can really do. You can't just be like, you know, like it's just that makes it worse, right? And so we all do this regardless. Uh, again, of how well we're doing in life, in that moment, we always do this kind of like sheepish, like, oh, just, you know, like walk away, right? It's a very awkward moment. And it's so funny that we all revert to that. It's as if for a moment we got picked. For a moment we were chosen. Somebody noticed us and then that got taken away. And automatically, even if it's just a little bit, we feel a bit of embarrassment, we feel a bit of humiliation. And this is kind of a theme throughout our human experience, right? Like everybody remember gym class? Gym class really, for some people, was the highlight of their day. You know, the athletically prone people in life, like they loved gym class because gym class was the constant reminder and affirmation that they're awesome. But for the rest of us who are not so athletically, you know, um, uh, adequate uh, or, you know, more academically maybe wired or like video games more than anything else, like gym class was more of a place that you survived, right? Like that was the goal, you know? And the worst moment of gym class was always when there was two team captains and they were your peers that were selected by the gym teacher and then it was their job to pick who was gonna be on their team. So they would go back and forth between picking. Now, if you're just trying to survive gym class, this is a scary moment, right? Because you're just praying that you do not get picked last. That is your only goal, that is your only aspiration. And every round that you go unpicked, you are feeling more and more insecure, right? Like, give me a lifeline, please. Like, I'll do your homework for you for a week. Like, you're trying to make eye contact and say, please pick me, right? Because nobody wants to be picked last. There's something inside of us that wants to be picked. We want to be chosen. We want to be affirmed. We want to be believed in. And this desire doesn't go away in life. Some of the most significant moments for us take place when we feel like we've been picked. You know, like when we're, we're, we're checking out different colleges and we're applying to a lot of different places, it's that acceptance letter, right? That's the big moment. And for a lot of us, it becomes not just where we're going to be for the next few years of our education. It becomes a mark or a label on us. Either we're good enough or we're not, and we have to work through that. And then there's the moments when we apply for certain jobs, right? And when we nail the interview and it goes really well, we feel especially good about ourselves because we feel like, all right, I make the cut, you know? When it comes to even our relationships and some of the most important relationships in our life, it starts with a, 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 a date, a coffee date, but we get to decide yes or no. And, and in that moment when somebody that we like says yes to that invitation, it says something about us. Right? We, we like that feeling. And then it progresses to, to the engagement and, and, and that proposal drop, right? And in that moment, once again, somebody is saying, I hope you pick me. I hope you choose me. Some of the most significant moments of our lives come down to this feeling and this desire of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be picked, wanting to be chosen. It's as if there's something within humanity, regardless of culture, regardless of society, throughout the ages, that was made to be chosen. We know this. But we also know the reality that not all the time do we get chosen. We've all had the experience of being overlooked. We've all had the experience of rejection. We've all had the experience where we tried, we applied for the job and it just wasn't the right fit. Or, or we were in gym class and we didn't get picked first, maybe we got picked last. And when we have enough of those kind of experiences in life, it sort of 
frames the way we not only see ourselves, but the way that we desire and aspire to certain things in our lives. We, we kind of settle into, well, I, I might not be as exceptional as I thought I was. So let me just kind of find a normal life. Let, let me sort of settle when it comes to my dreams, when it comes to my hopes, what I expect from relationships, what I expect from my job, what I expect from my life. Maybe I'm more ordinary than I thought or when I grew up, the world told me when we all got a trophy, right? And this was certainly the case for a group of fishermen in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, there was this group of, of men who, who they fished for a trade. It was a family trade. It was kind of what they fell into. It's what their dad did and, and their dad did and their dad did. And it was manual labor and it was kind of smelly. It wasn't glamorous. There was nothing really extraordinary or special about it, but it paid the bills. They did this. Day in and day out, they were fishermen. There was nothing exceptional on the outside about their lives. Now, of course, if, if they really wanted to, they could have kind of pivoted and went a different direction and pursued a different career. But if you were a first century Jew living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, you didn't do that. You just put down your head, you did your job, and you didn't make waves. Now, the only exception would be that if at a young age within the Jewish community that you were raised in, you showed an exceptional aptitude for learning the scriptures, if there was something about you that stood out, that, that, that made you appear more superior in your knowledge and application of God's words and deep spiritual truths, then, then you were handpicked by the rabbis in your local community to become one of the most prestigious roles in the Jewish community at the time, the role of a disciple, to be instructed and trained on how to instruct and train others on the ways of God. But this group, these group of fishermen, they, they didn't get picked. Their time came and was passed, and they were overlooked. Nobody singled them out in the community for, wow, you've got something special about you. And so they went on with day-to-day -day life with the family trade until... Until one day, Jesus shows up, and he does what he does best, changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where their story picks up and really actually begins in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets, immediately left and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus. Think about this. God in human form. The son of God, the light of the world, the miracle maker, the one who heals broken hearts and broken lives, the one who casts out demons, heals the sick, raises the dead to life, the one who would ultimately give his life as a ransom for us so that sin and death would no longer have the final say in our lives. He shows up on the scene, the rabbi of all rabbis, and invites them to be a part of not just changing history, but changing eternity. Yeah, now they had to have been baffled, right? They had to have been completely confused. It would have been one of those moments where they would have done a double take. 
Like, me, right? And even though they had no idea just how much their lives would change by saying yes to the invitation and just how radically they would be a part of shaping not just culture, but all of history. They did the only thing that makes sense. When the greatest one of all calls you and recruits you to join the team, you drop everything and you follow. Now, let's think about this. It's been over 2,000 years. Some of you might be sitting here and saying, you're getting a little worked up. I mean, this is just a story, right? Like, you're right. Jesus is not here in the flesh. And we're not at the Sea of Galilee. And we're not fishermen. But what if, what if the invitation wasn't just for them? What if it was for you and me as well? What if Jesus is calling us, calling us to more? And what if he's not just calling us tomorrow, like someday when we're adulting better in life, someday when we have a better church attendance record, someday when we learn to memorize more scriptures, but what about now, right now, right where we are, in our neighborhood, at our job, in our profession, in our zip code, in our apartment building, in our season of life, right here in Brooklyn, what if Jesus is calling? Friends, the invitation wasn't just to disciples 2,000 years ago. The invitation is to us as well. And when we really let that sink in, then this is not just new information or maybe information to cover again in a church service. This is an identity reveal. Because it means that even though we may have felt overlooked at different moments in our life or even right now, We have been chosen by God. We've been handpicked. We've been selected. We're not his last choice. We're not his last pick. We're not second rate. We're not an accident. We're not a failure. Doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what our family background. It doesn't matter what we're struggling with right now. We have all been chosen. The invitation stands for us all. Follow me. And if we choose to respond the way the disciples did, our lives will never be the same. So it begs the question, if we too are supposed to respond, then we should probably deeply understand what Jesus really meant with those two words, follow me. Like we have to ask ourselves, okay, well then what does this call really entail? It's like Jesus himself said, count the cost. And so this morning, let's count the cost. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to accept the invitation to live chosen and picked by Jesus himself in this world? Well, first we have to notice what Jesus said and what he didn't say. He said, follow me. He didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me. And the call is an invitation to more than just conversion. It's an invitation to a new life. Follow me. It's interesting because Carl Ellis Jr. says this about conversion. He said, there is a difference between a disciple and a convert. A disciple is one who's in the process of learning to obey all that Christ commands. A convert is one who surrendered his or her allegiance to Christ as Savior. Jesus commanded us to make disciples. Today, we try to make converts. (laughs) and expect Jesus to make disciples. But if the conversion event is our sole focus, we short circuit the great commission. 
When I first started dating my husband, Ben, I remember I liked him. I did. I thought he was a good guy. That's a good thing. I did. I, if you were to ask me about Ben, I would have nothing bad to say about him. He's charming. I talk about his qualities. The <laughs> and you know, stand out, his humility, um, amazing. You know, the, the character that I was getting to see in him, I had nothing but good things to say. I was a believer. When I started dating Ben, I believed in him. But now, I don't just believe in him. I'm devoted to him. I'm so devoted to him that I made a covenant before God and those that we love. A lifelong covenant. So devoted to him that I live with him. That we occupy the same space that we've made home together. So devoted to him that we share everything. So devoted to him that we make all major decisions together. So devoted to him that it has altered my identity. I went from single to married, Reyes to Smithy. There is a difference between casually dating and eternally committing. And ultimately what Jesus is asking for in this invitation is more than just casual hangouts with him. He wants a lifelong, personal, transforming devotion. And ultimately, when we choose this kind of devotion, then it means that we step into the role of being a disciple. The call is to more than just conversion. It's a new life. And, and the call requires us to actually become disciples. Now, this is a term that we don't really use outside of church context, so let's quickly define it so we can all be on the same page for the rest of this conversation. A disciple, in discipleship, really, is when we enter into an intentional multiplying relationship centered on pursuing Jesus, the ways of Jesus, together. An intentional multiplying relationship where it's centered around us pursuing the ways of Jesus and we get to do it together, right? Now, this is how uh, Mike Breen, he defines disciple, and I, I love his perspective. He says the disciple is, uh, defining a disciple is fairly easy, in my view. He says the Greek word Matthias is the word that scripture uses for disciple, and it means learner. In other words, disciples are people who learn to be like Jesus and learn to do what Jesus could do. Not what Jesus should do, but what he could do. That blow our minds right there. One great writer on, the, on discipleship put it this way. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Now, in the time of Jesus, a first century Jew would have absolutely understood the role of a disciple. It was very common to them. Not only that, they would understand the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples, this was clearly known. They were witnessing it all the time. It was affecting culture and society around them. But since we don't live in first century Palestinian rule, it's probably worth us quickly understanding historically the context of the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. Now, when a disciple accepted the invitation to become a disciple by the rabbi, then he joined with the other disciples. And often they would intensely dialogue over various issues of life and how the scriptures pertain to them. 
The emphasis of these dialogues was not just what does God's word say, it was what does it mean and how is it to be put into practice? And they weren't satisfied with quick and easy answers. They would look at things from every angle possible. This is so different from the kind of environments that we're used to today. We're used to, to sitting in classroom settings, listening to long lectures and taking notes, but this was not the environment of learning for a disciple. They would dialogue, they would wrestle with aspects of life and what it meant to see God's will in these different areas of life, right? They would wrestle together and, and they would have these long dialogues and then get this, whatever the rabbi said, whatever he dictated and declared the interpretation after they wrestled, that was it. The debate ceased. He was the absolute authority on how to apply God's word in their lives how to live out God's will in their everyday lives. His teaching was now their new norm. They didn't look to a favorite blogger. They didn't look for celebrity endorsements. They didn't try to find exceptions to the rule to dictate when and when they wouldn't follow the rabbi's standard. They absolutely believed that the rabbi knew the very best way to live. And so whatever he decided was their new norm. Now the environment in which they learned, once again, is not like we're used to. Because when we think of classroom and we think of learning, we think of going to a class with a start and an end time, with homework assignments that you turn in and you get graded on. But this was not the environment that a disciple was being trained by a rabbi in. It was a relational learning experience, which meant it was a continual daily exercise. And it would, it would consist of these things, either a disciple watching how the rabbi lived because he was in such close proximity and relationship to the rabbi, watching how the, the rabbi lived and asking the rabbi questions about how he was living and why he was living that way in his everyday life. Or it would be the rabbi observing how the disciples were living in their everyday life and asking them questions about how and why they were living the way they were. And the most consistent and persistent question the disciple would get asked by the rabbi, they got used to hearing this, was, why did you do that? Why did you do that? The emphasis was on behavior formation, not just information overload. And ultimately, the true fruit of a disciple's time with a rabbi was not in what they learned to say and how they learned to articulate in an argument. It was in how they learned to live. Jesus invites us to this type of relational learning experience. He invites us to walk with him, to learn from him every single day. And we never graduate from being a disciple. We never get to a place where we can say, you know what, I've read the Bible front to back. I know everything. I have the degree. I've figured it out. This is kind of boring, this stuff now, because I've graduated and I need more. The deep, deep, deep truths, where are they? Where are the hidden passages? And what commentary haven't I read yet? No. It's a relational learning environment between Jesus, the Spirit of God, and you every single day where we open our heart to let Jesus speak, let him decide, let him dictate how we live. This is the environment. Now, here's the great news about this. We don't have to have a PhD to become a disciple. We don't have to have a master's in divinity. If you do, that's awesome. But you don't need one to be a disciple. You don't need to be the most seasoned person. 
the smartest person, the most talented person, the most charismatic person. None of these are requirements to actually be a disciple of Jesus. But I'll tell you what is a requirement. It's something that's actually a lot harder sometimes to live up to. Jesus requires us to live a life of surrender and obedience. Listen to what Jesus says here to his disciples in Mark chapter 8. If you truly want to follow me, you should, be at once you should at once completely disown your life. And you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own as you continually surrender to my ways. For if you let your life go for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will continually experience true life. This is hard. Surrender obedience? Let's be real. Can we have a real conversation? Sometimes that's difficult. That's like the most difficult thing. We live in an era of self-help books, personal branding, self-promotion, and living by the motto, do whatever makes you happy. Let's be real. We are not naturally inclined to choose suffering, sacrifice, obedience, and to deny our desires in pursuit of what is true and right. It's just not how we're accustomed to live in our culture. And yet Jesus makes it pretty obvious by the way he lived his life and by his teachings that not only did he have to sacrifice greatly and suffer greatly to fulfill his mission, but we as disciples will have to sacrifice as well. Yeah. You know, we, we can't experience the full power of the resurrection unless we're also willing to embrace the way of the cross. They go together. Jesus is calling each of us in different moments of following him to sacrifice, to a life of sacrifice, which by the way, is totally worth it because that's how we experience the true life, life and life to the full that Jesus has for us. But every single day, we have to answer the question, today, am I going to surrender my way and my agenda and even my wants in pursuit of Jesus' leading in my life or Am I going to pursue things of this world that are unworthy of my devotion? Every day, that's a question. Last week was Vision Sunday for us as a church. And I don't know how many of you were here. Were you here? Can you wave if you were here for Vision Sunday? I love Vision Sunday. It's something that happens once a year as a church, and we celebrate together across all of our communities and all of our locations. We celebrate all the extraordinary things that God has done in the past year. And it's amazing. And one of my favorite parts of Vision Sunday is the vision video. It's an annual thing. John and Aaron Cortizo, they create this video. They have for the last five and a half years. We, we found out there's a half involved at All Team on Friday. And, uh, and they're brilliant. They're brilliant storytellers. And it really is a short film. It's like these stories of transformation and breakthrough woven in. And we get to celebrate what God is doing in the life of our church. And by the life of our church, I mean in our lives, right? We are the church. And it's beautiful. And throughout the whole video, that there's also, you know, a vision for where we're headed as a church. And there's images uh, from all different communities. And so one of the funny things is sometimes you get to see yourself, you know, in the video. You're like, hey, that's me talking in the lobby or that's me worshiping or whatever. Well, at the end of the video this past time, the very last frame was me. And this is the first time I'm seeing the vision video. So there it is. I'm there. And the image is of me worshiping the week before here in Brooklyn. Right here, I was worshiping with you before I was getting up to preach. I think we have a shot of it. I, I took a screenshot. That's me. So that face, that uh, worship, 
slash I'm about to ugly cry face, has a story behind it. And so when this image came up at the end of the Vision Sunday video, I kind of chuckled between me and God. I was like, of course, of course, this would be how you would want me to end seeing this vision video because there's a story there. You see, that Sunday morning, it was minutes before I was getting ready to preach. And during worship, I said to Jesus, I'm about to speak to a group of people, your people. But before I speak, what would you speak to me? What do you want to say to me? And for the last few months, I have been praying and fasting and believing for some pretty big breakthrough and provision in a couple areas that I know when that comes is going to be a game changer for a number of areas in my life. And I feel the need. It feels great in different moments. And my faith has been stretched in the season of waiting and believing. Anybody been there? And it's, it's, it's challenged me in all the right ways. And even during, uh, as a church, our 21 days of prayer and fasting, that's been at the forefront of my time of prayer and fasting is praying and believing for these breakthroughs and this kind of provision in a couple different areas. And so in that moment when I said, God, what would you speak to me? I was surprised because he responded with a question back because he said, Nicole, do you want me even more than the breakthrough and provision? Like, do, do you desire me? even more than getting the answer to your prayers. It was what I like to call a grow up moment. <laughs> it was a surrender moment as a disciple. It was a moment where I was being challenged once again by my savior and my Lord to lay down my timing and my agenda and my plan of what I thought was best in exchange for his. Now don't get me wrong, he is a great provider. He's the miracle maker. I know he's faithful through and through, so I know I can trust him with every need that I have. But what I resolved in my heart that day is that if the breakthrough comes next week or a month from now or a year from now or a lifetime or an eternity from now, I have Jesus, so I have everything already that I need. And so in that moment, I surrendered. And so that ugly cry, face, surrender. And when I got up to preach just a couple weeks ago here at downtown Brooklyn and to online, I was preaching that morning not just to the crowd, I was preaching to myself as well. Wow. It's these types of moments that we're signing up for when we say disciple. When we say yes to the invitation to follow, then we're saying, God, I'm opening all of my life to you. So it's gonna be your way. On the days where that feels great and on the days it doesn't feel great, because honestly, your way is the best way. Your way is the best way. We actually grow through this thing called obedience. Now to be clear, we don't actually follow and obey Jesus to earn his love. We need to really understand that or we're gonna get into some dangerous places when it comes to our relationship with God and our sense of identity and security. No, 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 we're already fully loved by God, whether or not we obey. We don't obey Jesus to earn his love, but we do obey to become more like him, right? In fact, there's this video clip that I came uh, across this past week from Francis Chan, and he's teaching a message from a few years ago, and he talks about this concept of obedience as a disciple. And I want us to just take a look really quickly because I'm not gonna try to re-articulate what he does so well. So let's take a look. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. 
right? Most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. As Simon says, is, uh, you know, you just, Simon says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, 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 you study it, you memorize it. You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of the things we do, when he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? They memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. <laughs> my friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said Talk about how much we know. It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. All right. Yeah. Francis Chan. That's why I didn't try to... I didn't try to say it. Besides, it would have been weird when I said I'd tell my daughter to go clean her room. I don't know if that would have translated quite as well as it does for Francis Chan. But notice the scripture that he talked about, the Great Commission. It's actually the mission for every single one of us who say yes to the invitation to follow Jesus. It's the role that we have as disciples. And, and this is the words of the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. To be a disciple, we sign up to obey. And as we grow and mature, it's because we obey. Transformation and spiritual growth cannot happen apart from surrender and obedience. Stephen Furtick put it this way. He said, sometimes the greatest moves of God begin with the simplest acts of obedience, which is why the call ultimately always demands us to respond. It always demands a response from us. In the story that we read, the account of the fishermen with Jesus who became disciples, it says that when Jesus invited them, when he called them, when he said, follow me, they immediately dropped their nets. They left everything they knew behind to know the one who was calling them to live this extraordinary life. There was an immediate response. And perhaps, perhaps for some of us, the reason that we still hold on to things that we should be dropping, like our agenda or our timing or our plans, our ego, our idols, our distractions, our preferences, our sense of control, our fears, our insecurities, is because we're still waiting 
for our extraordinary moment with Jesus. We're still waiting to hear him clearly call us. We're still wondering whether or not we're really chosen. But when you know that the invitation has been issued to you personally, well, then you're willing to drop what you need to drop to know the one who's called you and to follow him. You know, in a room like this and those who are watching online, this message is going to land on every single one of us differently and rightfully so. The Spirit of God is speaking to us. He knows our hearts. He knows where we are in life. He knows the secret places that I could never know and I certainly couldn't plan for in this service. That's the power of the Spirit of God. But I do know that every single one of us listening to my voice right now, Jesus is calling you. Not just the person next to you or the more ideal version of you. He's calling you. And that call today in this room, just like always, demands a response. So for some of us, maybe it's going to look like for the first time in our lives, actually making a decision to accept Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord. For some of us today, it might look like drawing a line in the sand in our hearts and crossing over from simply convert and believer to follower and disciple. For some of us, it might actually be to make the decision to be water baptized. That's a significant moment in every follower's journey of faith. It's a public demonstration that I'm not just believing in Jesus, but I'm following him. My life is no longer my own. My life belongs to the one who saved me, the one who redeems me, the one who has a plan for my life, the one who knows me and loves me. I belong to him. You know, it's interesting because Saul in Acts, uh, and, and some of us are familiar with Saul's story, but he was a great persecutor of the early church and believers and followers of Jesus. And then he actually became, because he had an encounter with Jesus and he went on this discipleship journey, he became one of the greatest leaders of the early church. But before he was that great leader, he was Saul. And Saul had a radical encounter with Jesus. He knew that Jesus was calling him. And it says in Acts chapter 9, the very first thing he did, the immediate thing he did was be water baptized. That was his immediate, was that public demonstration of allegiance to Jesus. The disciples, the fishermen becoming disciples, their immediate response was to drop their nets. Saul's immediate response, to be water baptized. For some of us, that might be our next step. And for those of you in this room and you go, that is my next step. I, I never really thought about it this way, but I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step in my journey as a disciple. Well, then the next steps areas that, uh, that JR talked about, there's going to be a team there. There's going to be people there and they can answer any questions you have about that. And we want to help you take that next step. Those of you who are on online right now, maybe you're going, okay, well, great, but I'm not in New York. What do I do? Well, let us know. Message us because we want to help you. Even if it's not in New York, we're going to help you take that next step. We're committed to seeing you grow and mature as a disciple. And I also think that for some of us in this room, the immediate response that we know is to once again return to the posture, the true posture of a disciple. Because we're sitting here in this place and even though we've, we've made that decision, there's certain areas of our lives right now that we're holding a little bit closed-fisted when it should be open-handed before God. There's certain areas, there's certain things that we're preferring our way and our timing and our plans. And I'll say this during worship, and I can invite the team to come up. But 
during worship here this morning, I got such a sense that there are some of us listening who are dissatisfied. There's a discontentment to our life right now. And we don't understand it. It's, it's kind of like one of those things where there's food in front of you and you're hungry, but you eat, but it's not what you wanted. It wasn't the craving that you wanted. And you're feeling that way about certain areas of your life right now, or you're just feeling at that place in your life as somebody who's following Jesus. And I really sense the spirit of God. Jesus say to me, for some people today in this room, I'm gonna become once again, they're more than enough. I'm gonna satisfy where they've been dissatisfied because they're gonna come back to a true posture with me of a disciple. And they're gonna get from me everything they truly need. We're gonna pray in just a moment, but I want us to hear together Jesus's invitation. This isn't a moment where Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He has his disciples, but he's actually inviting people to step from beyond the crowd to truly following him. And this is how the invitation goes. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray in this place. Jesus, we thank you for the invitation. We thank you that you've called every single one of us the call to follow. And wherever we are in our journey of faith, our hearts are stirred because we know that it's, it's an invitation that demands a response. And so we submit our hearts to you, O oh God. And if we're comfortable in this room and we're ready, we're, we're, we're saying in this prayer right now, I'm not just a convert, I'm, I'm a follower. I'm a disciple. And I wanna take on the posture of a disciple in my life. So speak to me. However you see fit, lead me, guide me, ask the questions, probe my heart and how I do things. And God, I have some questions to ask you too, but I, I wanna enter into this relational learning experience and be transformed in the process of following you. And perhaps there's people in this room right now as we're in this attitude of prayer and you say, you know what? I actually have never made a decision to personally follow Jesus. Maybe I've grown up in church. Maybe that's you. I've grown up in church. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church. Maybe you've never been in church before, but you, you never really heard the invitation very personally or you never accepted it. And today you're here in this room and you're ready to make a decision to place your faith in Jesus as your savior and your Lord, not just to check a certain religious affiliation box after today, but to begin to know Jesus personally in your life and be transformed in the process to experience the eternal life that he has for you. And you want that here in this place. If that's you, then on the count of three with nobody really looking around, just want you to have a moment between you and God but if that's you, would you just wave at me so I could know who I'm about to pray for?